Are you a martyr in your marriage? Well, let's find out. Wow, it is Palm Sunday already, ladies. Thank you for tuning in. Acts chapter 2, verse 41 reads, quote, So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. End quote. Can you imagine baptisms, conversions by the thousands? This is what was happening in the early church. Why is it not happening today? Several years ago, I had the opportunity to hear Monsignor James Patrick Shea, president of the University of Mary, speak on U Mary's campus, and I will never forget that talk. It was over an hour, um, and I can't, <laughs> I can't even begin to hope to recreate it for you, but I will try to share the very important points related to our topic for this week. When the church was born, uh, when the church was sent, when Christ tells the twelve in Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20, quote, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, <clears throat> end quote. The church entered an age of apostolic mission. At some point, that age of apostolic mission seemed to come to an end, and the church ushered in what we now refer to as an age of Christendom. Now, there were many undeniably beautiful things that came of that age of Christendom. So much gorgeous art, incredible inv advances in science, um, <clears throat> and the normalization of Christian principles. Think about it. Most of society still agrees on the basics found in the Ten Commandments. Across the globe, most people still believe that parents have some measure of authority over their kids and that parents should be respected by their children. Across the globe, most people still believe that murder, affairs, stealing, and lying are bad actions which merit severe punishment. There are laws in place today which have their foundations in Mosaic law, such as women being able to inherit and own property to inherit and own land, or that wives are not the property of their husbands, but rather to be treated as equals, not to be bought and sold like slaves or put out of the house on the whim of a faithless man. See, people who claim that Christianity has done nothing good for the world knows absolutely nothing about history. But the age of Christendom also brought some bad things with it. Two things in particular, lukewarmness and complacency. Monsignor Shea posited that the complacency which the age of Christendom brought on blinded the church to the approach of the second age of apostolic mission, which is where we are now. The reason that we are not able <laughs> to convert 3,000 people in a single day is not because God's grace has somehow become less available to us, but rather that we have made ourselves less available to him. It is not that we lack evangelizers, given that the early church was just a fragment of the number that claim to be Catholic 
today? What is happening? What has happened? Why in the second age of apostolic mission are we having significantly less impact on the world than those in the first age of apostolic mission? And it's quite simple, really. It's marketing. <laughs> the marketing team of the early church was amazing. How amazing? Well, how do you get 3,000 people to jump on the bandwagon and commit to your cause, all 3,000 of them taking that leap within the same 24-hour period? And you have to think, too, of what the 12 were up against. How much of the ancient world was hostile to the Christian message? as evidenced by the many martyrs of that time, as evidenced by the catacombs where Christians met in secret so that the church might not only survive, but thrive and grow. The 12 and their disciples had to sell not only a meaningful life amidst mounting persecution and overall hostility, but a meaningful death as well, a death that was likely to be long and slow and painful, humiliating and seriously premature. How do you sell something like that? How do you sell a radical lifestyle change that will almost inevitably result in your being targeted and taken out? The fact that they could inspire 3,000 conversions in a single day without any of the modern technology that we consider marketing says volumes. Think about that. It was a hard sell. What centuries of increasingly advanced technology has taught us about marketing is that nothing, nothing is more effective than the marketing done by the actual human person simply living out their life one day at a time. You are a walking billboard that's more effective than any actual structure. So let me ask this week, on the walking billboard that is your life, are you advertising an authentically Catholic marriage? You know, Scott Hahn says, quote, your marriage is the one homily for your children, end quote. But the thing is, it's not just for your children. It's for everyone. Everyone you come into contact with. This is what Mother Angelica meant when she said, quote, If Catholics would rise up and truly be Catholic, the world would change overnight. End quote. And also what St. Catherine of Siena meant when she said, quote, Be who God meant you to be, and you will set the world on fire. End quote. Is your marriage markedly different from other marriages precisely because you are a faithful Catholic. John Gray tells us, quote, from those who are able to sustain love long enough to get married, only 50% stay married. Out of those who stay together, possibly another 50% are not fulfilled. They stay together out of loyalty and obligation or from the fear of starting over, end quote. So are you, are you part of the 25%, roughly, according to John Gray, roughly 25% of marriages in which spouses are happy, healthy, fulfilled, 
and faithful because you actually love living life with your spouse. And you see your marriage as your acceptable offering to Christ. Let's talk about martyrdom. I'm going to read um, a rather longish passage <laughs> from the Catholic Encyclopedia, so bear with me. <clears throat> Quote, The Greek word martus signifies a witness who testifies to a fact of which he has knowledge from personal observation. It is in this sense that the first term appears in Christian literature. The apostles were witnesses of all they had observed in the public life of Christ, as well as of all they had learned from his teaching in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the uttermost part of the earth. Acts 1.8 St. Peter, in his address to the apostles and disciples, relative to the election of a successor to Judas, employs the term with this meaning. Wherefore, of these men who have accompanied with us, all the time that the Lord Jesus came in and went out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day he was taken up from us, one of these must be made witness with us of his resurrection. Acts 1.22 In his first public discourse, the chief of the apostles speaks of himself and his companions as witnesses who saw the risen Christ and subsequently, after the miraculous escape of the apostles from prison, when brought a second time before the tribunal, Peter again alludes to the twelve as witnesses to Christ, as the prince and savior of Israel, who rose from the dead and added that in giving their public testimony to the facts of which they were certain, they must obey God rather than man, Acts 5.29. In his first epistle, St. Peter also refers to himself as a witness of the sufferings of Christ, 1 Peter 5.1. But even in these first examples of the use of the word martus in Christian terminology, a new shade of meaning is already noticeable. In addition to the accepted signification of the term, the disciples of Christ were no, were no ordinary witnesses, such as those who gave testimony in a court of justice. These latter ran no risk in bearing testimony to facts that came under their observation. Whereas the witnesses of Christ were brought face to face daily from the beginning of their apostolate, with the possibility of incurring severe punishment and even death itself. Thus, St. Stephen was a witness who, early in the history of Christianity, sealed his testimony with his blood. The careers of the apostles were all times beset with dangers of the gravest character, until eventually they all suffered the last penalty for their convictions. Thus, within the lifetime of the apostles, the term martus came to be used in the sense of a witness who at any time might be called upon to deny what he testified to under penalty of death. From this stage, the transition was easy to the ordinary meaning of the term, as used ever since in Christian literature. A martyr or witness of Christ is a person who, though he has never seen nor heard the divine founder of the church, is yet so firmly convinced of the truths of the Christian religion that he gladly suffers death rather than deny it. 
St. John at the end of the first century employs the word with this meaning. Antipas, a convert from paganism, is spoken of as a faithful witness, Martus, who was slain among you where Satan dwelleth. Revelation 2.13. Further, on the same apostle speaks of the souls of them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony, Martyrian, which they held. Revelation 6.9. End quote. Then, from the Catechism of the Catholic Church, number 2473, quote, Martyrdom is the supreme witness given to the truth of the faith. It means bearing witness even unto death. The martyr bears witness to Christ who died and rose, to whom he is united by charity. He bears witness to the truth of the faith and of Christian doctrine. He endures death through an act of fortitude. Let me become the food of the beasts through whom it will be given me to reach God. End quote. Then this passage from a homily in the 7th or 8th century, this is from the book Celtic Spirituality, quote, Now there are three kinds of martyrdom that are counted as a cross to us, namely white, blue, and red martyrdom. The white martyrdom for someone is when they part for the sake of God, from everything that they love, although they may suffer fasting and hard work thereby. The blue martyrdom is when through fasting and hard work they control their desires or struggle in penance and repentance. The red martyrdom is when they endure a cross or destruction for Christ's sake, as happened to the apostles when they persecuted the wicked and taught the law of God. These three kinds of martyrdom take place in those people who repent well, who control their desires, and who shed their blood in fasting and labor for Christ's sake. End quote. Now, I share these extended definitions of martyrdom coming from the heart of the church because I want to address a fad of which I have become aware in recent years. And this fad is one in which wives who are unhappy in their marriages claim to be martyrs. I call it, and I'm not alone in calling it this, mind you, I call it the martyrdom complex. Because when we examine two things, namely the church's understanding of martyrdom and the theology of woman, we find that this martyrdom complex that these women have is such a sham. We just read from the Catechism of the Catholic Church, number 2473, and preceding it, 2472 reads, quote, the duty of Christians to take part in the life of the church impels them to act as witnesses of the gospel and of the obligations that flow from it. This witness is a transmission of the faith in words and deeds. Witness is an act of justice that establishes the truth or makes it known. All Christians, by the example of their lives and the witness of their word, wherever they live, have an obligation to manifest the new man which they have put on in baptism and to reveal the power of the Holy Spirit by whom they were strengthened at confirmation. End quote. Let me read that first sentence again. Quote, the duty of Christians to take part in the life of the church, impels them 
to act as witnesses of the gospel and of the obligations that flow from it. End quote. Regardless of what type of martyrdom one suffers, be it red, white, or blue, which is also translated as green martyrdom, this sentence captures the most important aspect which all three types of martyrdom have in common. What are the obligations of the Christian wife which flow from the gospel? And is the woman unhappy in her marriage fulfilling those obligations? Because if she's not, then this martyrdom that she claims is just an excuse that she hides behind to be abominably lazy. When we talk about the discipline of joy, and we've given so much explanation over the course of the last several months of how we figure that this discipline of joy is a Christian obligation, we are not talking about indulging in a weakness. Quite the opposite. If reaching for joy, if reaching for grace were easy, we wouldn't need to discipline ourselves to accomplish it. No one in their right mind would choose to be miserable if it were so terribly easy to be joy-filled instead. Joy, ladies, is the basic obligation of the Christian. Father Narcisco Irala says, quote, Life should be a perpetual joy, the joy of living for God, of serving Him in one's neighbor, of saving souls, the austere joy found in suffering. There is the joy of living in a present of infinite value, joy for a past entrusted to the divine mercy, joy for a future assured by his paternal providence. End quote. If someone is suffering because they refuse to take time for rest and refuse to acknowledge the physical, emotional, and mental limitations with which they were created by God, then they're acting in defiance of their creator. And their suffering is the natural consequence of sin. That's not martyrdom. And then we get into the, into the obligations specific to wives, and we come back to our respect examine that we introduced in episode 14, because we know from Ephesians that wives are commanded to respect, to submit, to be obedient to their husbands, that husbands are clothed with authority over their wives, if a wife is fighting that authority tooth and nail with disrespectful behavior, again, she's acting in defiance of her creator who placed her under the authority of her husband. And so whatever suffering results is due to the consequences of sin, to the consequences of her sin. That's not martyrdom. Martyrdom is some type of death which results from following Christ's commands, not dismissing or abandoning them. Moreover, true martyrdom has the inexplicable quality of being incredibly attractive. Going back to that quote from John Gray, if you are part of the 75% who get married, stay married, but essentially stay married in paper, but not in practice, as we talked about in our March end-of-the-month podcast on Dr. Laura Schlesinger's The Proper Care and Feeding of Husbands, what is there in your example of marriage which would attract others to have a marriage like yours? 
even worse than the bad example being set for your acquaintances, friends, and extended family, if you are married on paper but not in practice, what message are your kids receiving from witnessing your marriage day in and day out? Also, you know those people who object with something like, well, thou shalt respect thy husband isn't in the Ten Commandments. Yeah, it's not. And neither does the Ten Commandments say anything along the lines of, thou shalt lay down thy life for thy wife. You cannot dismiss or make argument against one part of Ephesians 5 without taking issue with the rest of it. And I'm sure that most of you have heard this very common homily from pastors about how the Ten Commandments are really just the baseline, how to not be a complete and total jerk. You didn't kill anyone today? Great! So what? Nowhere in the Ten Commandments are pornography and alcohol abuse mentioned. Yet women whose husbands struggle with these mortal sins will be the first to tell you that they're mortal sins. And that wicked double standard is again revealed when they refuse to acknowledge that disrespect in a wife, regardless of her husband's struggles or even the actual flaws in his character, justifies the sin of disrespect. Moreover, Christ himself demonstrates for us that most of the commands by which we live our lives minute to minute are extrapolated from the Ten Commandments. In Matthew chapter 5, where he goes through the Beatitudes, he talks about dwelling on anger equaling murder committed in a man's heart. He talks about dwelling on lustful thoughts being the equivalent of committing adultery. These are extrapolations. You will hear this over and over and over again in this podcast. If a happy marriage is within your grasp and you deliberately choose not to reach for it, that's sinful behavior. That's called the sin of omission. In some cases, it's not even the sin of omission. Some wives are actually deliberately sabotaging their marriages because for them it's easier to be miserable than it is to be joy-filled. The martyrdom complex is the method of claiming martyrdom in an attempt to give meaning to the misery that one brings upon one's own self. St. Gregory of Nazianzus says, quote, It is mere rashness to seek death, but it is cowardly to refuse it. End quote. These women who claim to be martyrs do not understand that while we ought to meet the call, to die to oneself bravely, you ultimately cannot choose or claim martyrdom for yourself. Martyrdom is not something which is self-willed. It is something which God allows for his glory and is merited by a select few who repent well and who control their desires, as we heard in that passage from the homily in the book Celtic Spirituality. If you hate your life, if you hate your husband, if you resent God's order, you are not a martyr of any type. And if it seems that I'm terribly passionate and upset about this fad, it's because this claim of martyrdom by women, who in reality are committing many sins against their husband and against their marriage and are responsible for their own misery, is such an insult to all true Christian martyrs. The Christian martyrs 
were men and women who were filled with joy and who loved all of humanity and were happy, happy to give their lives for Christ so that others might be brought closer to him. It is not possible to have a discipline of joy and be miserable. Yes, I'm going to make that claim because it is impossible to intentionally take time to enjoy your life and somehow still hate it. It is impossible to give authentic, authentic thanks to God and to your husband through gritted teeth. And it is impossible to stop emasculating your husband and to then continue to hate him. Because when you realize how difficult it is to quit listening to the world about how you should treat your husband, when you realize how difficult it is to be the wife God is calling you to be, if you're anything of a decent person, you start having compassion for how difficult it must be for your husband to be the man God's calling him to be. Ladies, if you're enraged because your husband isn't stepping up, you have got to take a step back and take a good hard look at yourself. Asking yourself if you've given him not only the space to choose of his own volition to do whatever it is that you wish he would do, but also if you've given him a safe space to try and to fail many times, a safe space to grow incrementally. If you have gone out of your way to demonstrate your faith and your confidence in him day in and day out the way that you did when you stood at the altar and entrusted yourself to him. If you think you've got nothing to be grateful for in life, then you clearly have not made a discipline of taking stock of God's countless blessings. And if you're gritting your teeth day in and day out from exhaustion, you're doing something wrong. In his consecration to St. Joseph, Father Calloway says, quote, on rare occasions, God gives extraordinary graces for a person to perform heroic penances, fasts, and mortifications. However, God never desires for his workers to burn out from sheer exhaustion. He wants them to take delight in mountain streams, forests, and sunsets. End quote. Taking Sabbath is not a suggestion. It's the fourth commandment. And if you're a mom, a full day to relax isn't feasible, I get it. So you take it in small doses throughout your week, throughout your day, but you must take them. Remember, burnout is not a badge. What this whole commentary on martyrdom complex comes down to, ladies, is this. You are responsible for your own happiness. And yes, it is perfectly possible to be happy with all of your husband's flaws and even with his sins because you married a sinner and so did he. Remember that. You are responsible for choosing happiness. You are responsible for choosing joy. There is no such thing as a miserable martyr. So ditch that martyrdom complex and get some accountability for developing the discipline of joy. And to that end, my Palm Sunday offering to all of you is our new Facebook support group for listeners of the Will to Wife podcast. It's a private group. It is a group which assumes the best of husbands. It is not a space for husband bashing, and it's not a space for making excuses. It is intended to be a space for women who are serious about pursuing a biblical model of marriage.
If you would like to join this private group, please send us a message either via our podcast platform, Anchor, or on our Facebook page, the Will to Wife podcast Facebook page. We will be very happy to receive you and to support you. Next week, we will be introducing a fourth part to the discipline of joy, that is, imaging God's imminence. I wish you all a blessed Holy Week, and we'll see you on Easter Sunday. Thank you so much for joining us. You can find all the quotes and resources referenced in today's episode on our website. We'd love to hear from you, and we're looking forward to having you with us again next week on the Will to Wife podcast. Mm -hmm.